Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody, and welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Before I continue, I just want to give a very big shout out to the entire Inclusive Innovators podcast team. In particular, to the UCL Elise team led by Bhavna Malkani and to our fantastic producer, Francesca Evans. This week, in our final conversation, I chat with Professor Miko Coria of Loughborough University, London, about the importance and the impact of social entrepreneurship. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to present these conversations to you each week. Thank you so much for tuning in. It really means a lot. I hope you've learned something, and I hope you've enjoyed yourself as much as I have. Thanks a lot. Take care, and all the best. Well, welcome, uh, Miko Coria. Thank you very much for your time. We're really excited to have you on today's uh, edition of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Um, thanks so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, Miko, if I could quickly ask you just to give a very brief introduction to yourself, um, just to let the listeners know uh, who you are and what you do at the moment. Yes, um, certainly. I, I'm the uh, professor and institute director um, at the Institute for Design Innovation at Loughborough University, London. Uh, so uh, the London School is one of the one of the nine schools of Loughborough University that's located in the Queen Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park, and. Um, we run a series of institutes there, and design innovation is one of them. So um, I, I've been working uh, at the institute since 2015 when we set it up, and um, and uh, I have, as people in design innovation tend to have, a very mixed background. So my um, original background is in design, and I, I was a design entrepreneur in, as my first career. And uh, at some point in time, I said, well, this is not very socially meaningful so I decided that let's do something different and I went into humanitarian work so my second career was um, working in in very many different parts of the world uh, looking at um, uh, health education uh, refugee related issues working for your red crosses and uh, different governments around the world the world bank and and um, and uh, ngos collaborating with a lot of ngos and and uh, civil society actors and my third career is academia and so uh, i kind of drifted into academia uh, quite a while ago maybe 20 years ago and and have been on that trip uh, since awesome well, I'm out of many talents and I'm very keen to dive into a little bit more about how you transitioned, as you mentioned, from that first career into the second and then now to your third. Um, but if we could just take a quick step back, would you mind giving us a little bit more um, explanation of what design innovation means for the, for the average person who's not sort of come across it before? Well, to be, be really, really, really simplistic about it, um, there are lots and lots of uh, design schools that teach students how to do design, you know, to do your graphic design, new product design, um, all kinds of design areas. Design innovation is about the use of design. How do you apply this design into very many different circumstances? So this is why design innovation is actually exploring the fringe areas of, of design and it's looking into areas which are beyond uh, product design or, or service design. Um, uh, it, it goes into uh, sort of operational models or business models. It goes into ecosystems. So it's the kind of uh, uh, the, the area of design which interfaces design with many other things in the world. 
So for example, um, applying technology, technology we know it is, it's there and, and it's everywhere and, and it's, in, it's really important, um, but at the same time, it's not enough by itself. Um, at the same time, having the business case or the operational model, if you're in, so, in social innovation, is also super important, but it's not enough by itself. Um, so we think that there's a third element, uh, which is the understanding the human factor, uh, how people work, how people think, what people do, how people understand need and desire. And that's where we come in from. And when you have those three bubbles and you look at the intersection in between them, that's where we think design innovation resides. So it's in the middle of technology, um, business cases or operational cases and human desirability. And we kind of recognize that unless you really pay uh, attention to the desirability, nothing's going to happen because people make decisions. Even in the world of algorithms and of AI today, it's still mostly people who, who say yes or no. And they might like the techie stuff, they might like the business case, but at the end of the day, the real killer is, do they want it? Do they want your social service? Do they want your new type of a fancy product? Do they, do they sort of feel a need to subscribe to, to, to an action or, or an activity here and there? And, and this is what really makes the world turn, is, is the desirability of things. And uh, so we put ourselves into that space. And it's a very, very complex space to be in because you, you're joining tech, you're joining biz, and you're talking desirability or the human factor. And how do you kind of uh, work in the middle of that space is, is a really interesting question. Yeah, a lot of balls to juggle. And I imagine, um, you know, also the, the important question of who wants it and, and how we sort of prioritize uh, certain, you know, different uh, sectors of society um, in terms of how we design these products and, and particularly mainstream ones, I think is a really interesting question um, that we'll jump to uh, a little bit later on. But um, Mika, one of the questions we ask everybody who comes on um, the show is what is their uh, innovation inspiration? And essentially it's the question of how do they get into the current you know, innovative role that they're in at the moment. You gave a little bit of an insight into before that you, know, you started out as a design entrepreneur um, and you didn't think it was uh, particularly socially uh, beneficial. So I was wondering if you might be able to jump into that story a little bit more and tell us a bit more about that journey from, you know, being a, a hands-on designer and then wanting to shift a little bit more into the humanitarian sector, as you mentioned. Yeah, well, I, I think it has a lot to, be, to, to do with, with understanding how people work. And, and, um, and I think designers do have a very, or should have a very sort of, strong sort of social responsibility in what they're doing. After all, if you look around yourself, we live in a completely artificial world. All you have to do is just look at yourself. You're dressed in clothes, somebody designs them, you wear a watch, somebody designs it, you go, you go and, and uh, work in a room, somebody's built it for you. So uh, humans today are embedded in an artificial world. Somebody has designed it um, one way or the other. So, and, and, and we do lots of things, we design lots of things uh, um, in, in the world ourselves. So what, what is happening in, 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 this is just my personal opinion, but what is happening is that we design the world and then the world shapes us. So this is why it does matter what kind of design decisions we make. Uh, and I mean, all we have to do is look at sustainability, climate action, uh, disability-related issues, the biases we create uh, for this and for that, and, and so on and so forth. And, and so we, we are making a whole series of decisions through our own actions. And they come back, and in the worst-case scenarios, they come back and bite and in the best scenarios, we live happily ever after, you know. And um, so I'm quite interested in that relationship. And I think that was really what, what drives me is that our actions have consequences. And, and, and thus, uh, it, it is not inconsequential what, what time, kinds of design decisions we make, uh, how we make them, and, and what are we aiming for, um, because they have an impact in what we are. And that, I think, is the important thing that perhaps took me from um, doing sort of design for the commercial world and then into more the humanitarian world. To be honest, 
these things are coming together in so many different ways today. So if you look at good qualities, innovations today, they are meaningful for the users. So they, they have a very clear sort of social uh, connection with the, with the person. They're, they're also meaningful for the organizations who do them and they're meaningful on, on a higher level where organizations work together. So um, as such, uh, this enterprise innovation and social innovation that used to be quite divided, I think in many different ways, they, they're, they, they are, there's a merging happening and, and we should not shy away from that. I think it's, it's really important for us to think of how they could come back together better so that we could um, cater for, for multiple list instances. So I think it's black or white about commercial, non-commercial. It's no longer there. I mean, uh, social organizations need to also uh, survive and to do that they need to create enough income and and you know they need to pay the bills so yeah. there is there's that kind of an aspect to it which um, which is driving the two together in many different ways and do you have a particular view on what sort of pushed them together like if was there a turning point was there is has it just been a gradual sort of you know understanding like you said that um, the kind of dichotomy that was set up wasn't really sustainable or has there been some sort of kind of cat catalyst that you think has shifted it and how yeah. might that like relate to say something like COVID now where we're seeing a really clear you know um, merging of a lot of this sort of private you know I, 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 I don't I don't actually think that there's any single uh, reason why 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 they're coming together I think there's a few reasons what one of them is that society um, well, especially here in the UK, but also in other places, has been in the process of privatizing, uh, shall we say, and, and pushing social services to a third sector. And, 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 uh, and, that's, and, and in part, society is paying for those. So there's, there's almost like a demand for the third sector or the so-called third sector to be, become more professional in what it does, be more accountable what it does. So in a way, that's probably be one of the reasons. Another reason that I, that I find in, in, in lots of uh, my acquaintances and friends is that people after perhaps careers in, 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 in the commercial world, people have started to question the, 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 the meaningfulness of that. And I think that people are finding that lots and lots of people who have extremely sort of, have done extremely long and, and good careers in, in, um, in the commercial world are gravitating towards working for organizations that uh, they feel are much more meaningful for them um, than in the past. So, so in a way there has been a demand for expertise and, and, and there's also been the supply of expertise coming into, into these organizations. And it, it has upped the game over the last say 20 30 years quite a lot for for uh, ngos for civil service uh, you know organizations for service providers and so on and so forth which hasn't really taken away necessarily from their ethos of of you know doing good but it's just made them a lot more professional so i think that's one of the things and they started using uh, you know, approaches, tools, techniques uh, that, that, you know, come from the, from the commercial world in order to do their job in the, in the social innovation sphere a lot better. So, um, yeah, those could be two reasons. There might, there are lots of others also. I think the world is, is looking for meaning overall, I think, uh, in many, many ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was wondering if you could give us a couple of examples or, or one example of, of, as you said, some of those techniques or practices or approaches coming from the private sector into the sort of more social impact sector and how it's you know improved or optimized kind of practices there well well all, all you really have to do is to look at social enterprise i mean uh, exactly the same way as there's a really strong concern towards um towards organizations helping startups to to work in the commercial world that extends uh, also to the to the um, organizations that intend to work or wish to work in the social enterprise area so the same business modeling tools are are, are used in, in in irrespective of whether you're doing social innovation or enterprise innovation the same way you you basically uh, need to understand um, um, your your clients, your customers, your consumers, or your users of your service—it doesn't matter what you call them. 
So in a, in a way, the 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 tools are are generic uh, in in some ways, and I think that that's that's really created um, lots of opportunities to apply. How should I say things across the board? So it it, it doesn't. The, the the concepts that people are using um, uh, in, in in social innovation in, and uh, and uh, you know looking at how how do you how do you take care of your clients how do you understand desirability they're pretty universal desirability sits very comfortably with with social enterprise as as well as it does with sort of uh, more commercial work. And out of interest, do you think there's a reason why like those kind of considerations weren't factored in already in the social sector? Like what it's as you mentioned, it makes a lot of sense now. It's really it, there's a real benefit to having brought in this kind of similar considerations. But the sort of question might be why were they not there in the first place? Well, this is again just my personal opinion. But when I started in the humanitarian sector, perhaps around uh, my initial contacts were around forty years ago. Um, it, it was an area which was very much uh, loaded um, by ideological stances of those of the people who were participating in them. So t- typically, um, the the origins of of of, of that, that area were were um, um, of they came from, shall we say, fields and disciplines which were inherently non-commercial, not only in terms of, of the preparedness of, of, to take on commercial activities, but also in terms of the, 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 the types of um, um, sort of, um, uh, how should I say, the types of um, almost like the ethos of that. So you, you had people coming in from sociology, anthropology, and, uh, 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 you know, uh, other types of um, humanities who, who were not very well-versed in, in, in commercial activities. At the same time, the commercial world uh, w- was felt that these other sectors were very, very, very alien to them. And I think that this is the big approximation that has happened over, over the years is, is that people have started to appreciate the different um, things that you find in other fields, uh, partly because they've had to, but partly because um, there, there's been genuine interest in them and people have seen it to be beneficial. There is a lot of lip service still around this, of course, in, in the whole world and, and, uh, and, and uh, perhaps the neoliberal agenda, which is very rampant around the world today, is, is not doing the best of the services for some of the social innovation agendas. But that's another, another discussion. Um, so I, I think that um, this very, the original um, location of, of the humanitarian sector, the type of uh, work done there, that's faded and more and more these, these fields are starting to come in because they recognize that there's a need for wider expertise to be able to do things successfully. So that's changed the, the, the whole, whole field. So, but it has taken a very long time to get there. And this is why, for example, I, I used to work a lot for the Nordic governments and, and uh, the Danish government was the very first one that actually recognized that there is value in developing entrepreneurial activities in their foreign development uh, investment program. And this was 25, 30 years ago. And, and the other Nordic governments only came on board quite a lot long later on that one. Uh, and, and now, of course, everybody understands the value of livelihoods, of, of you know, getting people to work, uh, getting people to have, you know, um, actorship in their own economic futures and so on and so forth. And, of course, now the trick is, is this just a hype or is this something of, yeah. of, a, of a sort of a long-term consistent trend that will actually pay off um, which is a bit of a, an issue, I think, sometimes. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that's really interesting. I think particularly the point about, like, just the expertise of the people who are working in the sector. Um, and I wonder if you've seen uh, whether it was also tied into that, um, just an understanding of who, or stereotypes around who the, the beneficiaries of those sectors were. So, you know, I think one of the things we see in the disability sector a lot is that, like, the kind of... Uh, policies and interventions that are extended towards disabled people, particularly in a traditional sense and sort of in a historical sense, have also been kind of couched in this language that disabled people are 
you know, are feeble or inferior or incapable of doing X and they need handouts, they need, you know, uh, they need to be sort of given things as opposed to what you just mentioned then of sort of investing in them to generate an empowering structure, to generate their own livelihoods, to have more agency in their actions. I wonder if that's something you've seen in your work or... Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it ties into a very much larger picture of, of sort of participation, having voice in, 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 uh, in, in almost anything. I don't think that the, the, the disability sort of related issues are an exception in this thing. I think it's just uh, another facet of the same, same issue, which is that um, uh, the, in the past, government and, and public authorities, their role has been seen to be one of, you know, being a provider of solutions, uh, you know, a very top-down, shall we say, uh, approach on, on how, how do we do things. And, and uh, typically, government in policy making has, has uh, retained the, the, the sole sort of right to, to create policies. Um, as, as they wish. And in many cases, that hasn't really worked very well because uh, there, was no, there was no consultation. And, and at some point in time, maybe a few decades ago, people started to think, well, actually, maybe this, this uh, participation is an important thing. Maybe the voice is important, but it's taken an awfully long time to, to come through, and it's still not there yet fully. But then, you know, the pendulum has also shifted a bit to the other direction. So, so some people in the, in the humanitarian, human development sector talk about the tyranny of participation, where, where ev everything it needs to be fully participatory and, and, and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, I, I, I think there's a balance in there somewhere. Well, if you think about it, um, if you have uh, a decent legislation in place, administration can make simple decisions without, uh, you know, how, how many school books do you deliver or, or you know, stuff like that with, without sort of great consultations around it. In some cases, you need to have, you need to have a bit more consultation when you are looking at, for example, um, um, thinking about, okay, is, is the primary school going to be in this village or that village, or are we going to do this program here or there where, where it's necessary to understand the needs and, and the demographics, et cetera, et cetera. But still, it, 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 it's within the overall uh, sort of administrative mandate and so on and so forth. But then when you're talking about things like um, uh, more wicked problems, where where which are ill-defined and 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 are 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 sort of uh, problematic in the sense that there's not not only there's no single solution. That's that's when you need to go into a more consultative uh, and more participatory programs by default. And, and I don't think that the line has really been established. When do you want to be fully participatory, and when do you want to have administration take care of things? You know. And at what level do you then decide these things in the administrative processes is also important. Um, this is where I think sort of you need to really be thinking about the value. Uh, and and uh, the big recognition is that participatory processes are very onerous. They take a lot of time and, and they're very expensive to do uh, because of that time involvement. So the results uh, might be hugely better but um, you, we need to find a good balance in, 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 in terms of voice. And one of the ways in which we can do that is to delegate simple decision-making decision processes down to the lowest common level where, where you know, people automatically would consult between themselves. Why, why do we need a decision made high up for something which can be decided on the locality? And, and, and then sometimes you have, you're talking about life-changing uh, things like you know, building a new road or, or having a completely sort of complete program to, to, to develop disability related entrepreneurship that requires an awful lot of consultation at all levels. And, and that can be a longer term affair. We should be patient about that thing. But if it's, if it's about simple things, uh, we, we can also streamline uh, lots of the decision making. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And in particular, one of the concerns, I think, in terms of how consultation is carried out, as you mentioned, often it's, it's time, time, it's expensive, it's time consuming, um, and it's, it's often, you know, sort of logistically difficult to coordinate. 
um, which means that sometimes you see it being done once and that sort of single point being used as a justification for kind of license to do whatever because you've had a user import at, at point X, but you know, your product point Y is entirely different. So I think that like thinking about, like you said, how to make things you know, much more streamlined, but also I think responsive and, and real time um, is also a really important challenge. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think most of the time what, when people are talking about participation, they do these tick the boxes exercises. And it's partly due to the fact that people actually don't know how to do these very well. So it, it's, it's not such a simple thing to set up a, a, a complex consultation process. Uh, who, who, do, who are you going to talk to? For, to start off with, you know, who, who are the stakeholders that you need to consult? Not everybody, every stakeholder is important. So it's, it can be really, really, really tricky uh, on many levels. I'm all personally for participation and I think we, the more we have of it, the better. But um, sometimes uh, you need to think very carefully on how, how are you going to do it for it to actually be a valuable exercise. Yeah, some great points there. Um, so Miko, you've obviously worked uh, in, a, in a broad range of sectors all around the world, but I was wondering if we can now draw your attention to, to what's happening out in East London, um, uh, in particularly the Here East Centre and the, the inclusive innovation hub that's being built out there. Um, so the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone has a whole range of different you know, partners and, L and limbs to it, one of which is Loughborough University and mm. also the Global Design Innovation Hub out there run by UCL. I was wondering if you can give us a little bit of an oversight into how you see the East London hub that's forming playing a role in this sort of broader sense of, of um, social entrepreneurship that, that you speak so highly of? Well, I, 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 th I think that it has its roots uh, basically in, in a couple of things. Uh, what, one of the big things is, of course, the creative communities in, in Hackney Wick originally. So there was a, there were, there's mm -hmm. been a very strong ethos of self-directed, small-scale entrepreneurial activity, you know, that is self-driven self and self-directed by the actors themselves, as, 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 as is what happens with artistic and, and communities and, and people who who are in the creative creative sectors. So at the same time, then um, we, we've got um, uh, sort of actors who have come to play knowledge, uh, the, all of the university players that have come to, to the space here who, who in, in many ways are, are interested in, in knowledge creation. And I think this widening participation that most of us sort of are engaged in is, is a really valuable thing. Um, and, and, and at the same time, then you, you, have, you start to have a lot of external parties coming in from the outside through the sort of innovation hubs like Plexol and, and things like that. So you have a lot of interchanges starting to happen. Now, uh, how does that then play out to those, those people who, 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 who have been, shall we say, living in, in this area? And, and, and what is this area? Is, is it the whole of East London uh, or, or uh, is it the boroughs around uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Olympic Park? How, how, do you, how do you then understand the community here? And I think that community is still yet a little bit of a construction there. There's lots of dynamic activities happening and lots of people are doing, do, like they say, doing their thing. But I'm not quite sure how well the different communities are, are come, in a way, coming together and how do they see each other and how could they benefit from each other. There seems to me still that there are lots and lots of communities that overlap. Maybe that's the way it needs to be, but um, I'm wondering, you know, how is... Is, is there like some kind of an East London social innovation agenda? Or, or are there in fact multiple agendas from multiple parties that are simultaneously taking a part? And of course that lead begs the question then, does there need to be a single agenda? Or, or is, it, is it sort of a, 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 like a, a, a platform for all kinds of opportunities? And then if it is that way, which I think is probably a good idea, how do you then ensure that the opportunities to participate in that platform are also maintained and enhanced over time? And, and this is where, where one might need to have some concerted action in terms of um, maintaining sturdy links uh, with, with the different um, 
communities of practice with the different communities around East London and very proactive ones because um, social innovation doesn't happen by itself you know it, 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 it requires citizenship uh, it requires participation it requires also actors that are willing to engage with the citizen organizations and, and uh, if I look at it from our university's perspective, we have a very strong desire to be, be active actors in that space. So we, we actually do a lot of things um, in, in through sort of a widening participation agenda and, and looking at sort of uh, social innovators, uh, you know, uh, citizen organizations. We work with a lot of them within our learning and, and also our research programs. And I think those kind, that kind of a role seems to sit quite comfortably with, with our, our university where we, we, we work with the organizations that are somehow in the wider context of, of, of East London. But um, it, it requires uh, fostering, you know, it doesn't happen by itself. Yeah, I think it's a really important point and we've spoken with, you know, various um, of the entities within the HERACE complex and with, you know, um, members of the HERACE themselves and I think while there's a huge benefit of obviously having big names, you know, like Ford or BT or, you know, kind of multinational organizations coming into the space and, and wanting to be more inclusive and innovating, there is this important question of, of how much, you know, integration there is actually with, with the existing sort of, like you said, communities of practice, but also essentially like the, the non, the minority groups that have based themselves there that have generated innovation, you know, specific to the, the communities that they support and how much of that rubs off into these large organizations or how much of it sort of happens in silos. Um, and I'm not sure if you've seen much interaction between some of these larger institutions and smaller uh, players. Obviously, you've mentioned, you know, as a university, you have a really good position to be able to kind of cut across those um, kind of different sectors. But I was wondering if in your experience, you've seen much between, yeah, I guess the larger institutions the, of the commercial sectors engaging with those social entrepreneurs at a, you know, a smaller level? Well, well the, the, the key thing for large organizations is, is that they, they operate in, large, in, a, in a large scale, you know, they, mm. they, and, and, and for them to engage with very, very sort of um, niche uh, situations, with niche players, with very specific sort of circumstances can sometimes be really difficult. Um, and at the same time, then if we think about, uh, um, say, for example, just take a, a person who would like to be a, an aspiring a social innovator in, say, the disability sector is, what is the real ability of, of, of that kind of a person? Or even if it's a group of two or three people, what's their ability to actually engage with a multinational? So it, it, it's, it's fraught with difficulties and, and, and difficulties which nobody, nobody, I think everybody has a good positive mindset. It's just that how do you find a common agenda? And I, and I think uh, for, that, for that reason, uh, it, it is necessary to have innovation intermediaries who kind of are able to connect these parties uh, together. And, and these innova in, innovation intermediaries are, are really, really, really important. And Elias is, 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 is you know, an, an one of the attempts in that direction. Uh, we, as a university, act partly as an innovation inter intermediary. So there's lots of people are doing that kind of a role some explicitly, some less, less so, um, some are taking it as an implicit role, but it is about creating the connections between individuals, users, uh, potential clients, customers, and then the knowledge producing organizations, the business organizations, and also the, the public administration, because part of the trickiness of, of, of this kind of an, uh, social innovation zone, if you want to call it that, is that it, it is in, in, in the meeting of, of three boroughs uh, mm. in, in London. So in terms of the public administration, it's not the simplest of, of, of affairs because you do have uh, you know, different structures and different aims at different boroughs also. So uh, Yeah, for sure. I think that point about finding a common agenda is really a fundamental one. Um, you've mentioned obviously that there were kind of these existing you know, social innovators and communities of practice in the space um, and part of it is part of the goal of this 
inclusion agenda has to, has to be to bring them into the progress that happens in this space and not just have them crowded out by larger um, organizations. I was wondering if you have a few kind of key points that you think some of those players you mentioned, whether they're public authorities or larger institutions or, interve- uh, or innovation intermediaries, when they're putting together their approach to ensuring that these you know, existing communities of practice are brought into this progress, what are some of the key things you think they need to keep front of mind, you know, whether it's around, like you said, facilitating access or consultation or even just like managing supports to, to ensure people have proper you know, um, ability to, to generate their livelihoods? Like what are some key things that you think should be on that agenda? Well, I, to, to, to be honest, uh, uh, I, I think there's a lot of hot air around. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, lot of uh, talk and sometimes very little action. So I, I, I think that what really rallies people, people's interest and activity is, is our activities and the opportunity to engage in meaningful activities overall. So... So in some ways, if, 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 if there is an opportunity to create a set of activities uh, that people can engage in, that, that somehow benefit individuals, uh, um, their, you know, benefit the agendas they're wishing to, to forward and, and, and so on and so forth. Perhaps they have some seed funding going around, uh, you know, uh, 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 and then activities that are able to also be flexible and, and, and transformative in, in, the, in the meaning that um, the, the, the direction can change as, as, as you know, things uh, evolve. I, I think um, those sort of platforms are interesting because um, if, if I look at, again, let's take the example of these small-scale social innovators, um, the, their their attention is being drawn into lots and lots of different directions. I mean, it, the, 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 the council may wish for, to consult them on this or that. Large companies may wish uh, to, you know, have them do something for them, you know, maybe l- understand users in, in the area or whatnot. Uh, then universities might be drawing them in a different direction. And suddenly you find that they no longer have time, energy, or, or, or you know, the resources to do the original core things that they came out to do. So it's it, the, these sort of, uh, the, the ecosystem that we have around London can work to the benefit, but it can actually be a major distraction also because people all also end up networking because of networking and net, not networking because of a purpose um, or because around a task. So if, if one is, would be able to, to create a, a series of meaningful activities that come with some resources attached to them, I'm not saying spreading out money uh, necessarily to everybody who's involved, but resources, time, place, support structures, things like that, to do meaningful activities um, and to, to do it on a roughly constant basis, so it, it, it allows itself to develop somehow over time, then I think that you might have um, very good ways of people engaging in, in things from their own perspective and you know, looking at co-creating the value. And I think this, yeah. this, this generally needs to be done around services somehow, some kind of services that support the, the emergence of good things in the ecosystem. And, um, and I think that's what I would do is I would try to see what are the services that are fundamental that would bring the, 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 the communities and, and the ecosystem together and would be meaningful and would create real value for the users, for the organizations, yeah. take part, and also for the system itself, you know. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and particularly your point about resources, I think is really fundamentally important. Um, definitely, I think, and I've seen part of this as well, there is a lot of, like you said, a lot of talk, a lot of conversations, a lot of consultations, a lot of coffees, a lot of networking. Um, and a lot of it, I think, has the potential to be quite extractive in a very exploitative fashion to the you know the individuals who are in that space originally but who don't get sort of the the benefit of of an increase in resources from people moving into that space um and whether it's seed funding or even just kind of in-kind services or access to services that previously didn't exist i think those really fundamental things that do need to be elevated um in terms of priority if we're actually to generate value for those communities um so that's a really good point to call out 
Um, but yeah, let's jump a little bit into, as you mentioned, the kind of services that are available. And I'd love to pick your brain a bit more about the MSC um, in disability design innovation that you're involved in. I would just love to hear your thoughts on how you know the design innovation field that you've been speaking about you see it interacting in particular in this case with disability as a use case and some of the perhaps, you know, kind of cool innovative things that you may have come across um, in the course or in the ecosystem uh, through your involvement. Yeah, I, I think people, um, now I have to make a proviso here that I, while, while I'm involved in, in, in the overall overall program on in many ways, I, I'm not actually delivering any of the 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 interactive teaching, which is related to mm -hmm. that. So I, I'm talking from secondhand uh, notions in that sense. Yeah. But but if we if we look at what what I think is groundbreaking in 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 this program is the fact that it's it is if not the first then among the first in in, in the world that is approaching the issue from from this perspective. And I think it creates an awful lot of value when it brings design to play because at the end of the day. Um, uh, accessibility, access to, to to resources, to opportunities, to kind of um, opportunities for people to to build their own lives, do depend on on sometimes technical solutions, but it also is is a lot of it is about simply how we organize work, uh, you know, the, the how we organize things around ourselves, uh, and. Um, and it's finding the desirable solutions for for the people who who live every day with disabilities or who, who have special needs um, on, on on a constant basis. So, again, we we cannot really take a top down view on that. And I think this is where, where what is what is really important about the, the the master's program. But I mean, we have people who who, who live with disabilities part as participants, and that's one of the key aims, is that people get a voice and they get uh, to develop their own skills in managing their own futures and and i think this is really 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 important and fundamental because they will be the people who will be propagating the messages uh, you know to the outside and they will be transferring the knowledge that yes we can do this it is possible to do yeah we we don't we don't only have to rely on benevolent top-down policies. We can actually be impactful in creating uh, you know, policies which are good for for us. Uh, um, and and um, so I think that that's one level. So it's awareness creation. It's creating the it, you know creating the future opportunities to do well um, in as 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 with anybody uh, in, in, in society. And I think that the program itself is, 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 um, is almost, I, I, you could call it seed funding for, for this kind of a mindset change uh, for the future. And I think it has an important role to play. And, um, and I think it should be replicated in other places. And I think over time, uh, it, it will be replicated. If I look at, all of the different programs that in the world that have kind of been discussing uh, these access for all or inclusive uh, innovation, inclusive design. Um, I, I think the disability master's program is a very specific case within the wider field um, of, of that. Uh, however, it is about accessibility of everybody in many different ways. Uh, and, and I think some of the innovations and some of the ideas coming out of the, 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 the master's program are, are, have absolutely wider applicability to the, you know, in a global scale. Yeah, and I think to kind of go back to your earlier point about how we sort of create better systems for consultation and participation, I think, as you mentioned, um, you know, this MSC could be seen as sort of seed funding, but also as like a, a, an investment in setting up those better systems moving forward. If you actually have people who are, you know, living, um, who have lived experience of the issues they're trying to innovate around, also being have the ability to kind of actually solve their problems or generate solutions and, and have others kind of come on board and be crowded into the space. I think that's a very good long-term solution for sort of increasing that level of consultation in a meaningful sense. Um, and I think that last point in particular about like designing, you know, for, for disabled use cases, having a much broader applicability is a really important one that hopefully gets much more um, 
airtime in terms of the narrative around disability innovation that actually designing for you know a use case that's often much more constrained will generate typically a better product because it has a broader applicability outside of that use case yeah i it, it's it's i mean i'm always reminded of the of the uh, swedish housing policy i think it's a great example of of this kind of thinking some some uh, there was a question made to the swedish housing minister a few years ago the details I might not get right, but essentially the, the, the idea was that how have you taken, taken poor people into account in your housing policy? And, and the answer is we haven't. We, we just create a, a housing policy that basically involves all, all social classes and all, all levels of income in, in, in a society. Uh, now, the reality is a little bit more complex on the ground, but it shows the attitude where 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 you can with with a single policy, if it, if it is inclusive, you can actually um, sort of completely bypass the the dichotomic setting of of you know our policy and their policy, but we can have you know the policy for everybody or the yeah. approach for everybody. And I think that's where the true inclusive innovation rests. And I think that's what inclusive design should be heading for. And I think that's what we should be heading also for in, in, the, in the master's program in some ways as, as a mindset of action. Hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, Miko, one of the final questions that we often ask everybody is in a, you know, kind of the opposite to the innovation inspiration. It's what is... Um, I guess, you know, your innovation, imagination, we call it. Where do you hope that, you know, if we had this conversation in 10 years' time, um, where do you hope that your work, um, and particularly this sector, has progressed to? Well, I, I, I think we're, we're heading to the realisation that climate change is going to be the biggie. So, so I think that what we, what we will, um, you know, want to probably be in a situation where it, it uh, uh, you know, taking climate change into account every, in everything that we do becomes highly desirable. If we got there, then you know their mindset would change, and and uh, and, and uh, that that's not happening at the moment. And I think that the big big issue is, of course, that climate change will dwarf any 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 other crisis that we've had until now by by a long shot. So. Um, I think that's where we ought to be going is to to address those kinds of issues so um it adds another level of systemic complexity so we should be addressing systemic related issues uh, in, in everything that we do we shouldn't be afraid of them because people create systems and systems can be if they can be created they can be changed yeah and, and, and sometimes it takes a very small little action on the ground floor to change a system uh, on the landscape level but it may require a lot of time for that to sort of dribble through the different layers so ways and means of accelerating that kind of uh, throughput of good ideas to the to the landscape change level uh, you know people talk about landscape changes uh, in, in uh, sustainability i think that's a really important uh, element great as a final question, so if we can go back to um, you know that point where you mentioned you were in your first career as a design practitioner, entrepreneur, and then you decided to take the shift and, and move into um, the humanitarian sector and shift your focus, uh, I was wondering if you could you know imagine uh, Amico 2.0 sort of today facing a similar decision. What's one thing you'd tell them about you know that that decision they're facing and the the kind of journey ahead from what you've uh, learnt over the last a few decades in the space well i i think you should do these career changes intelligently which means that you you kind of build up knowledge and understanding and then you move on so you don't go into in into say um inclusive innovation without having the tools of the trade in in your kit because there's a lot of lot of people who are really willing uh, uh, but very not able <laughs> yeah. to, to, <laughs> to, to, to change things. And, and uh, so get the abilities, get the expertise, get mm. the kind of know-how before you move on to your next career. You know, chart the waters, um, understand what, 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 are, what are the things that you really want to get into 
read up, study, learn, and, and try it out, you know, do, do something, test it uh, before you go. It's, you're almost like prototyping your own life, life uh, decisions in a way. <laughs> Uh, if, if you want to go into humanitarian work, then do a month in Nepal. See, mm. do, do you fit in? If you want to sort of look at um, uh, getting into disability action in, in a social innovation enterprise, volunteer for a weekend. Uh, and, mm. you know, do that, that kind of stuff where you're prototyping life decisions in some ways. Um, and, and I think that will really pay off because it will help you to to get the right direction where where you will do be doing meaningful things with the expertise that actually helps to make them meaningful. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I know a lot of, of young people sort of struggle with that. They want to do something meaningful, but they sort of also haven't invested yet in themselves to have the skills to deliver much impact when they go and try and work in those spheres. So I think that's also a nice kind of signal that um, it's also fine, I think, to go and spend that time investing in your abilities to then be able to deliver an impact in a space later on, um, which I think is a, a really good signal for all those people who are potentially coming out of university degrees now or going into them thinking about how they can chart their, their life careers. So um, uh, not surprising that the advice is to prototype and test from a design innovator, but I think uh, yeah, useful yeah. advice. No, <laughs> yeah. Check it out. Test it out. Yeah. Prototype it. Do something, you know. But but let me just let let me just conclude by saying is, do something you know, do something. Don't just think. Do <laughs> that. That's that's the really key key issue that you have to be actually willing. You need to take the step of actually going out there and and, and wanting to do something. Uh, and um, without that, nothing is going to happen. Great final note to leave on. Well, thanks, Miko. Thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome to chat. Um, we'll leave it there. But look forward to hearing about all the progress that happens. Um, you know, in the various different sectors you're working in and hopefully uh, we can chat again soon. All right, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Be well. Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise 2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development, and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capsule Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexor, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.